I'm Carrie Miller. This is an NPR News conversation about water from the One Water Summit in Minneapolis. I'm here to moderate a discussion with a group of mayors and experts who are all faced with the urgency of delivering clean water to their communities in the face of tight city budgets and aging infrastructure and a climate that's changing. Some observers have called this a perfect storm, and I think we're going to find out why in the conversation today. I'm also here because NPR News is kicking off a special series of reports on Monday along the Mississippi River. We call it Flyover Down the Mississippi. We're going to travel downriver, hosting national call-in shows every day at noon. I'm going to be in Iowa. We'll be in Louisiana. We're going to finish up with a town hall in LaRose, Louisiana. We're going to talk about agriculture and the river, water, and climate change. And at the end of the week, after I've listened to what everybody has to say all up and down the river... We're going to have this town hall to talk about solutions. So that's at noon every day, Monday through Friday, next week for flyover down the Mississippi River. Now to our conversation today with the mayors and our experts. Mayor Rita Albrecht is a business owner, and she's the mayor of Bemidji. Welcome. Good to have you here. Hello. Mayor Phil Stang is an artist and the mayor of Kimswick, Missouri, population 200 and... Actually, it's 168 now. <laughs> okay, 168, although the numbers grow during the Apple Butter Festival, so then the town really thrives. Yes, we have a two-day event in October where we get 150,000 people, so we have to be logisticians. <laughs> Mayor, good to have you here. Thanks for coming. Okay. Radhika Fox, as you know, is the CEO of the U.S. Water Alliance. Really good to have you here, Radhika. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. And James Anthony Parrott is the executive executive director for the Jefferson County Sewer District in Louisville, Kentucky. He is sitting in for our mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, who couldn't make it. He had travel complications at the last minute. So Tony was like, sure, I'll step in and do it. So here he is. And welcome, Tony, and thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, Radhika, I saw a startling number on what it's going to cost to modernize the country's water infrastructure. I don't think a lot of Americans know this, or if they do, the number isn't really real, north of $600 billion over the next 20 years. Is that right? That is right. Let's, let's make it real for people. What does that mean? I mean, is it the pipes that deliver clean water to our homes? Is it the wastewater pipes? What is it? It's all of it, actually. Um, you know, we are really at the dawn of the replacement era when it comes to our drinking water systems, our wastewater systems. Many of uh, these systems were built 50, 60, 100 years ago. Um, and so we're now in a situation where our, our nation's uh, water infrastructure is aging and in many cases failing. Um, a water main breaks every two minutes in this country, wow. so we'll probably see 50 water main, or I can't do the math of an hour, but 30 water main uh, breaks as we're chatting with you. Um, and this has uh, tremendous impacts on our communities. It's a disruption to businesses. Uh, there's concerns around safe drinking water in homes, um, how we treat that wastewater and return it back to the environment. So um, it is a real challenge um, that we have to face as a nation. Tony, I, I was reading an interview that you did about this recently, and you said the real dilemma of this is that water infrastructure tends to be out of sight, so it's out of mind. 
What does that mean in your city about bringing attention to a really serious problem that that residents are going to ultimately have to pay for, right? Yeah, it's a real challenge. Our industry, uh, everything we do, most of the pipes and pumps and pump stations, all those things are either underground or out of the public eye. And so they really don't recognize it until, as Radhika mentioned, there's a water break or there's a street cave in or a basement backup or something like that or flooding in your community. And so, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, there was a lot of federal grants that used to subsidize capital improvements. And now the true value of replacing these systems are really uh, hitting the road. And so when we had plans to bring out, whether it's a facility plan or a 20-year plan to address aging infrastructure, the public is really shocked at the cost. And so affordability is a big question and a big issue. And that's part of the conversation that we're having now is how do we make folks understand that what we do is about public health and safety. It's about safe, clean waterways. And what type of value are we bringing to the community? Did I see the number right? You're saying that $4 billion worth of infrastructure repair and replacement has to happen in your city over the next 10 or 20 years? Yeah, our critical repair and reinvestment plan is a 20-year plan uh, that touches upon flood protection, stormwater, and wastewater. Uh, but it is a $4 billion initiative. Uh, How much would that cost the average family? Do you know? Well, you know, initially to kind of get started, we we need about a 20% rate increase. Wow. uh, Which is about uh, 10 bucks a month uh, on the average bill. Uh, But we're phasing it in over time, so we're going to probably be asking for uh, probably $3.65 over a three-year period just to kind of get it ramped up. Yeah. Mayor Albrecht, I'm curious about how often you talk to citizens of Bemidji about this replacement idea and then what it's going to mean to their own individual pocketbooks. Well, in Bemidji, which uh, getting your mental maps out there in Minnesota, we're, uh, if you think about the chimney in Minnesota at the top of the state, we're about 100 miles south of that. And we are the first city on the Mississippi, mm-hmm. so we take that role very seriously. Now, we don't draw our drinking water out of the Mississippi, but towns south of us do, starting in St. Cloud and many towns along the river all the way down to New Orleans. And so our wastewater treatment facility is something that we are really proud of uh, meeting our, our goals for um, the standards that MPCA sets for us and actually exceeding them. And so right now we're in a boom time in Bemidji. Our population has been growing about 5 to 8%. And so the capacity that we have in our wastewater treatment facility right now, uh, we need to put out additional utility lines. And, and so our struggle will be how do we pay for and how do towns all along the Mississippi River, mayors, uh, in the 10 states of the Mississippi are all, all wondering, you know, how can my community afford to put in new wastewater treatment facility? I, I know you take that very seriously, that you're at the, the first city on the Mississippi, and you think about what flows south to St. Cloud and some of the other cities. I mean, mm-hmm. give me a sense of the conversations that you have with mayors south of yours, that your city that might say, we don't like all the nutrients, fertilizers that are going in. Are you aware of what that means to our individual city? 
Sure. And, and in fact, uh, you know, one of the goals that we have in our community, we, we sit on Lake Bemidji, which is a 6,400-acre lake, and there are a lot of um, septic systems around the lake. And so our goal is to how do we put sewer around the lake? And it's a, it's a large bill that we think we're going to need federal help, state help, and uh, local county help. It's going to be a funding cocktail, if you will, to try and figure out how do we, how do we pay for that because our goal is to protect the resource. Mississippi River runs through Lake Bemidji, and uh, it's important that we are thinking about how is it that individual septic systems are impacting that and how can we replace that with municipal utilities. Mayor Stang, I was looking at the history of your town. It was founded in 1859, are there water pipes that not are not quite that old, but that are pretty vintage? Uh, yes, there are. Um, actually, in 1859 and to about 1977, they were all uh, cisterns and trucked in water from really? other places. That's correct. Wow. So we have a lot of nice places to store bodies if you want to see that. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> what? One of the comments I would make about that is with 168 people and our budgeting process is uh, sparse, to say the least. We get a sales tax from our shops and the, and the balance of our budget actually comes from the uh, two festivals that we have. Okay. This is not a sustainable opportunity. So what we have done is we partner with Jefferson County, Missouri. We also partner with the Port Authority, and we also spend a lot of time partnering with the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative and the associated um, leverage that that brings to us. And so uh, that and the fact that I control all the permits makes it a very Ah. interesting way to get that going. Our two major problems really are not the actual getting of our drinking water, but we have a considerable stormwater issue, and we sit, my house sits about as far from here to that wall over there from the Mississippi. Wow. And so when I hear numbers from downtown St. Louis, like 39 feet above flood, um, I have a lot of people and a lot of trucks and a lot of sand and gravel and clay coming my way because we have to stop it. What do you, I, I was looking at some of the flooding, the cyclical flooding that's yep. happening in your area. Can you, are you in a situation where the best move would be to bring people back off the river, I mean, including yourself. And so you're not having to do a lot of the preparation and the replacement. Uh, you're looking at me like no, I, that's I, a sensitive I've, topic. I've, it's, it's, it's a sensitive topic because it is a historic city. Mm-hmm. And that which is by the water was done like most of the people going way back to the founding of this country. The water was there, it was there for transportation, it was there for food, and that's where the the bulk of our city is built. So if we were to retrench um, and try to mitigate it in that way, we would lose the entire history of the city and we might as well all leave anyway because that's a historic district. So basically what we've decided to do with this is we're, we're building a river port that will be allowed to flood. Ah. I'm going to get to flooding, come back to flooding here in just a minute. Um, I want to talk about what the effect of, just for public awareness was, of the Flint water crisis. 
and we have some people with microphones out in the audience. I'd like you to think about this as, as I talk to Radhika and our other guests about it. Tell me what happened in your community. Tell me a story. Just give me some experience about what happened in your community when awareness rose because of the Flint water crisis. Did politicians suddenly wake up and this got onto the agendas of the city council? Were citizens suddenly concerned about this? So if you'll raise your hand, our people with the microphones will come over. And Radhika, what did Flint do for awareness of water infrastructure, water purity, all the issues that you think about? Well, as Tony said earlier, um, water has been a very out-of-sight, out-of-mind issue, right? Uh, The pipes and all of this are beneath our feet. We don't think about them. Right. Um, So I think what happened with Flint, and and Flint was a tragedy um, that uh, should never happen again in this country. But what happened in Flint is I think it showed the nation how essential water is, how essential the systems that bring it to and from homes and business are. And I also think what Flint showed the nation is how water impacts everything that we care about. It impacts public health. It impacts community. And that um, I also think it showed us that how race and poverty and the water management converge. Um, so it, it really is a lesson for the nation. I, I just want you to say something about that convergence that we didn't realize before we saw it kind of playing out day to day in Flint. Well, um, you know, if you look at Flint and and many other communities, whether they're urban or rural, many people in this country don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. Mm -hmm. I live in California where um, in this last last drought, wells ran dry, and it was primarily Latino families in the Central Valley that were hit first and worst. This is in the agricultural part of California? Absolutely, Uh We also live at, you know, I think I'm from India, and, um, you know, when we think about people who don't have access to water, uh, we think about uh, rural India or Africa or something like that. But the reality is that uh, in this country, 1.7 million people still don't have access to uh, drinking water in their home or flushing toilets. So a huge issue there. Uh, in rural and native lands. Uh, Then if you look in our urban communities, uh, there's many challenges like Flint. I mean, there's millions of lead pipes uh, in cities around the country, again, because it's a legacy issue where these pipes are old. Um, Many wastewater treatment systems are often in lower-income communities um, because that's typically where the water flows down, and so they have all kinds of health impacts, environmental impacts. So... um, all of it is connected, right? That's right. why we focus on one water. Mm-hmm. And the choices that we make around water management get to either better outcomes or worse outcomes for our community. Can someone in the audience tell me about right, right over there? And sir, if you'll just identify yourself. Uh, hi, um, Dan Mills, uh, faculty at the Humphrey School for Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota here in the Twin Cities. Great. Uh, at the time of the Flint water crisis, I was uh, uh, teaching at Plattsburgh State University in upstate New York, and there it was actually the students. There was a group of students, uh, part of the Environmental Action Committee, who gathered together, convened a panel of uh, decision makers and the water manager from the city, and actually convinced them that they needed to take a harder look at their water infrastructure in that community at that time. So it was great to see young people coming forward and stepping up and saying, hey, this is happening, we need to do something about it. Right. Do you think it really made a difference in the way that Absolutely. community... Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Way to go on the students leading that. Other, other stories from your communities? Yes, good morning. Monica Lewis-Patrick from We the People of Detroit. 
I think we miss it if we talk about Flint in a past tense. Okay. Flint is still not fixed. And one of the critical points that I think you also miss about Flint is that it wasn't just about the infrastructure and it being antiquated. What was the major problem is the setting aside of democracy and being able to use preemptive legislation to do what happened in Flint. So I think we've got to be cautious about that language. And we've also got to know that 37 states across this country have this preemptive legislation already on the books. What, what do you think has changed since you brought up the the political side of this. What do you think has changed in Michigan as a result of what's going on in Flint? Uh, Not much has changed in Michigan. Not much. As people talk about the $120 million that was allocated from Congress, that money has been stalled by the governor and the, uh, the GOP legislation that actually is in the majority in Michigan. And so without constant vigilance from the frontline practitioners and those that have stayed in Flint and continue to suffer in Flint, being uh, courageous enough to deputize themselves and continue to speak to the issue, uh, there would be little attention paid to Flint. And so I would encourage this room to continue to acknowledge that Flint is still not fixed. Okay. Ken, thank you. Tony? You know, the one thing I would add is that, obviously, from a public uh, utility uh, perspective, since uh, 1980s or 1990s, under the lead-copper rule, we are responsible for testing our our drinking water and and reporting those uh, uh, to the U.S. EPA. And so in in the utility industry, we've known about the impacts of of what's in uh, the the drinking water relative to lead and copper since the 1980s and 1990s. One of the things that we've done from a public utility perspective is to identify the fact that we need to replace lead pipes or we need to replace critical infrastructure before it becomes a catastrophic event. The issue that she mentioned about Flint and other communities, it often comes down to the lack of political courage for folks to do the right thing, to give the utilities the resources that they need to stay ahead of these uh, critical issues, uh, particularly when it, when it relates to public health and safety. And so we are not going to have the ability to change uh, what we need to change because of you know the fact that we have leadership issues and political courage issues because folks do not want to vote on a rate increase. I mean, that's from, the, from my perspective. Folks on the city councils, the state legislators, or individual taxpayers are not willing to accept that either. I think that, you know, ultimately the governance is really the political leaders who are elected to uh, cast their vote. And so obviously they are concerned about what their constituents or their, their public thinks about that. And so I think it's a combination of us educating the community and the community understanding that there is value and there is community benefit and to make sure that they put pressure on their representatives to make sure they're doing the right thing so we don't have catastrophes like we had in Flint, Michigan. Let me go back out into the audience with that to say, are you seeing more examples of political courage and are you seeing individual taxpayers who are you know, taking this on as a responsibility? Could, could somebody, yes, right, right over there. Hi, um, my name is Trina Downer. I'm actually from Flint, and I'm a Native American, and I would like to welcome you all to the waking world. 
uh, Standing Rock did awaken everyone to the fact that water is life. The main thing I want to say before I get to your question is that Flint, Michigan is still without drinking water. We are only getting 5,000 cases a day, four days a week. Please go home, initiate a water drive, and send us water. Please. Now, back to the question. Um, I think the political environment is changing because frontline warriors are out there putting the pressure on. Without the frontline warriors, uh, nothing is going to change. And I encourage you all to listen to us because we're the ones on the ground. We're the ones being affected by the decisions that you make. And if you fail to do your job, you're going to kill people. Thank you very much. But, but hang on just one second. I mean, this is a good point about how important activists are in this. But you, as you raise consciousness, right, you have to move people to bring this up to their state legislator or elect people that are going to make changes. And I wonder where you think you are on that. We're actually doing really well. We are changing hearts and minds all across the world. We are able to uh, divest, uh, get divestment out of pipelines. We're able to put pressure on uh, cities like Cleveland, Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. that uh, need to uh, fix their infrastructure. Uh, it, like you said, it's out of sight, out of mind. But because we're out there fighting and making noise, people are starting to listen and starting to realize. So if you realize it takes 40 bottles of water to make pasta for dinner... Um, and 120 bottles to make Thanksgiving dinner, you will realize that you can't do anything. I had a resident tell me the other day that her blood lead levels were over 45 parts per billion, and there's nothing anyone is doing about it except Elon Musk, who just announced that he would provide filters, house filters for all the lead pipe uh, victims in Flint. Glad you were here. Thank you for the comment. What else in, uh, in the political atmosphere? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, my name is Janan Cornstock. I'm from the Little Traverse Bay Band of Odawa Indians in uh, the state of Michigan. Uh-huh. Uh, I wanted to make um, you aware that when the infrastructure was built in the beginning, you did, whoever built it, they didn't have the forethought to think seven generations ahead. Who is going to pay for that? When it starts to deteriorate, when it starts to crumble, right now is the time to think about having some type of uh, capital investment fund where it would accrue interest for later on down the road, 20, 30, 40 years, when the infrastructure that you are building today, my grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren, it's not going to be on their backs to fix, and they're going to have to come up with $50 billion. This is Miigwech. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Phil, um, that's something that confronts really small communities and big cities as well. What about what she's saying about you're not just fixing it for today, but you have to think about investing. Well, that's, that's absolutely true with all uses of water. Um, in the case of Kimswick, it was easy to say that we had no money to do anything. Uh-huh. But what we do is we develop as many alliances as we possibly can. When I was first elected, I would go to county council meetings, and it was, who's that guy? And now I walk in the door and there's a whole bunch of people who say, Mr. Mayor, what can we do for you now? Uh And that's because I used leverage. I used the leverage of the county. I used the leverage of the state. I annoyed the governor to death so much so that he resigned. And uh, (laughs) 
I don't think it was over water, was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, uh, and t- tying, to- tying together all the cities around us worked fine in the beginning. We were getting somewhere, but now, as the other mayor and, and, and other mayors up and down that river, we have leveraged through Mississippi River Cities and Towns. We also put pressure on our congressional delegations, and that then starts to allow us to figure out other ways to make inroads into this process. We even have started to explore the possibility of getting grants from worldwide organizations headquartered in London and other places. Mayor Albrecht, how does this work for you? I want to weigh in on the whole idea of activism because I think that uh, the water protectors have really shown their power and might through that. And and Mississippi River cities and towns mayors are also doing that same kind of activism. We are a collective body that is working to identify what are the needs that our communities have along the Mississippi and talking with legislators and congresspeople, uh, senators in Washington, D.C., as uh, Mayor Stang mentioned, to think about how can we get federal uh, assistance to fund these kinds of things and, and um, you know, not have to put it on those uh, little old ladies in the fixed income in our neighborhoods. The other thing I would say is Flint, Michigan contamination is only one kind of contamination. Other uh, drinking water contamination is happening around our country and including in Minnesota, uh, where we had a, a, a settlement just recently with 3M. And honestly, one would think it's only those eastern suburban uh, communities in Minnesota that uh, in the metro area that are affected. But actually, communities like Bemidji are affected by that, too, because the materials that the PFCOs and PFCAs that contaminated that drinking water are what were in firefighting foam. And firefighting foam uh, has contaminated some of the wells in Bemidji. So we are also, even at the headwaters where we think our water is wonderful and great, we have to think about what's our next step to blend water and to put in a new uh, wellhead so that we have drinking water that is safe for our community. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to an NPR News conversation about water from the One Water Summit in Minneapolis. We're having a discussion with mayors and other experts about a lot of the issues that challenge them and challenge communities about water, aging infrastructure, a climate that's changing, tight city budgets, what it means, how to solve contamination. This is ahead of our... Uh, embarkation next week on our flyover down the Mississippi, where we'll be talking uh, about water quality and water issues all along the Mississippi River and ending up in Louisiana. Back to our discussion now with our audience and right out there. Yes, I'm uh, Mama Lila from the People's Water Board in Michigan. Uh And we have a mapping project Uh, We're mapping across the country places where water is contaminated, and we're putting forth uh, federal legislation, an act that would serve clean, safe, affordable, accessible water as a human right. And so that is something that all of this delegation can participate in, in terms of supporting that legislation. It was initially going to be put forth by John Conyers, and he retired. So we're 
in the cycle of getting uh, the act published. And it has uh, done the research around affordability. The affordability expert has worked on uh, that issue as mm -hmm. it relates to uh, having uh, citizens be able to afford water in the future. So we've done research on affordability, and we have done this work as the People's Water Board because we feel that because Michigan has 22% of the world's fresh water, that we have to be water protectors. Is, so, there, a, is there a place we can go to see your yes. mapping? The uh, website that you need to go to to get the, the total information of what the act is covering is called Affordable Water Now. Thank you. Tony, have you seen in your community and in the state of Kentucky a difference in um, individual willingness to be involved in activism around water? I think what we're seeing now is that once we've had more conversations with the community and they're becoming more educated, that you, ha you see more activists, you see more community-based groups coming forward and trying to be a, uh, collaborative uh, as we deal with aging infrastructure, as we deal with uh, neighborhood revitalization, as we deal with economic inclusion, as it relates to all of the major capital investments that we as public utilities do. Uh, folks want to understand how they can not only benefit from our services, but how can small businesses and minority-owned businesses and women-owned businesses uh, have a seat at the table, and how can we make sure that all of the jobs that are being created under our capital program are actually being uh, benefited by local residents. There's an Iowa contingent here, right? Where, where are you all sitting? Like right over there. I, I ask about this because uh, one of the places that we're stopping on our flyover trip is in Iowa. And I've been reading some background about the legislation that happened at the Iowa State Capitol about cutting back on the nutrients, the fertilizers that are going into the Mississippi River and how controversial that was. And I wonder, where does that stand now? Hello, I'm Wolf, um, and I work at the Iowa Soybean Association, and we're proud uh, of the delegation that came to the One Water Summit. It's been a great, outstanding experience, and, and so thanks for asking the question. Um, we, we know that we have water quality issues in the state, and the state legislature and the governor and everybody involved uh, are working diligently, and they did pass a bill and put some more money, right, into the issue. $242 million? Yeah, Is and so, so some folks would say, hey, that sounds really great, right? Doesn't sound like enough. Doesn't sound like enough, right. We, we have, we have a, we, we're owning a big issue. And it's going to take a lot of money. Some people say between four and six billion dollars to achieve our goals, right? And and so, you know, part of the question is how fast can we go? And the reality is, yesterday, I, as in in the meeting, I was getting text, and corn was I don't know what corn growers three dollars a bushel, uh, soybeans uh, ten year low. Uh, farmers aren't going to make any money this year. It's not going to happen. It's going to be a rough year. Uh, so there is no doubt that these 
changes that we have to implement across the landscape to, re to reduce nutrient loss are going to take an investment. Uh, somebody has to uh, uh, pay for that, whether it's farmers, whether it's society. The truth is it's a shared investment. Uh, there are many issues that the state legislature has to prioritize, and we're certainly working with many groups to help, help make these decisions. And we're hopeful, especially with the One Water Movement, I mean, you're building some of the political will, if you will, uh, for these decisions to be made. So we're hopeful. You know, Minnesota has some great funding invest, investments. Missouri has had it for some time. Iowa's on the cusp, I think, of, of really uh, accelerating that funding, but you have to have the priorities at the right time. Do you, just a question about that, I, um, in reading about the debate at the state capitol, there was a lot of bitterness about where the Farm Bureau came in on this, you know, special interests, which of, of course are at work in every political debate like this. Do you feel like you saw the political courage that some of our other listeners here are talking about exhibited in that, in what was a really key debate at the Capitol? <laughs> Should I read your silence as an answer? Or? Well, uh, you know, we're, we're all part of our family of uh, ag organizations, and, and collectively we all want to be unified. Uh, some of us are in different places at different times, but um, it's, it's a process, right? It's a political process. And maybe I'm giving a diplomatically uh, safe answer. I'll acknowledge that. But, but again, what you have going on in Iowa that we're very proud of is that we're, we're unprecedented in our alignment in support of a better water future, right? It's a, it's a community issue, upstream and downstream. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and Farm Bureau members, uh, I've worked with Farm Bureau my whole career. It's going on 29 years. So, um, so collectively, we'll get there. It's a question of when. All right. Carrie, Thank can I weigh in yeah, on this? Yeah, Radhika, please. So I think that what is holding us back in the water sector is we have these very old, entrenched ways of thinking. It's us versus them. It's farmers versus fish. It's, you know, cities versus agriculture, right? And we just got to stop that nonsense because... The reality is, is that so much is at stake. And, you know, we're here at the One Water Summit, and what gets me excited and hopeful um, is that we have all kinds of positive solutions when people really seek to understand those divergent views, right? So in Iowa, um, there are great examples of... Uh, of utilities who are investing with farmers upstream, right? Mm -hmm. And that's reducing the nutrients um, that flow down. And that's a, a fantastic way to come together to leverage each other's expertise and capacity. So, you know, there, it, I could go on and on on all of these solutions. I guess but what I'd ask you about that is whether the political arena lags what, what you're building here. So the po yes. Yes, the and the, the, this question of political courage. So, you know, we um, have the opportunity to run something called the Value of Water Campaign. Mm -hmm. And so we index on an annual basis what are public attitudes towards uh, water, what do they care about. You know, 88% of um, Americans 
think that investing in water should be a top priority. Almost all of them are willing to pay more uh, if they know that investment will happen. And this is flyover, right? So that is urban, that's rural, that's black, that's white, that's male, that's female. People at the local level understand the importance of that investment. And so, yeah, we need our political leadership to catch up. And this is actually a perfect time to catch up. We're entering into a major midterm election cycle where uh, we're going to be voting on the future of the House, the Senate, Mm -hmm. uh, governors, state houses, and countless mayors races. So I think we should all be asking um, our elected officials, our aspiring elected officials, what are you going to do for water? Because what we do for water means what we're doing for our community and for our economy. Uh, a question or comment right out there. Bianca Butts here with the Cleveland delegation uh, representing Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. Happy to be here in this space with everyone here. Just wondering, um, after experiencing the great commentary from the frontline communities yesterday, what are some strategies that the panelists have heard that they just think are just really good examples of how to engage at the residents at the grassroots level with the grass tops perspective? So how to activate communities Absolutely. in this? Yes. Tony, how... Could you weigh in on that too? Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of different ways. Uh, one of the things that we, we do in Louisville is uh, we hold what we call community conversations. Uh, community conversations in every neighborhood that we uh, serve uh, to make sure that we are actually going to try to learn from them as opposed to us trying to go and ask them or, or, or uh, you know, control the message or the dialogue. And then secondly, uh, the other thing we try to do is, particularly as it relates to a specific project or specific area, we set up what we call Community of the Future Advisory Committees. So you have representatives from the uh, community, you have representatives from the, uh, the churches, you have representatives from the environmental groups, uh, and representatives from all parts of the community that are helping us shape the designs and also shape the direction that we go with projects and also how we can also influence uh, sustainability within those communities. So you do, you have members of the clergy standing up on Sunday morning or organizing within the church to I, I, pay I w- attention to this? I would say that uh, hmm. it's safe to say is that they're not only standing up in church, but they're also brokering meetings uh, between us and other stakeholders, and also between the labor unions that we also inter- interact with uh, in our communities in our construction program. Phil, would you want to tackle the question about how you're activating people in the community ab- around this? Sure. Well, I think we have a, a unique situation in Kimswick and the surrounding area because we are so intimately involved with the biggest body of water in the middle of the United States. And uh, it's, as I said before, is outside my front door and everyone else as more flooding continues uh, based on global warming and also other things that are happening upriver from us. Uh, it's, they're intimately involved in that water. The other side of it is also the stormwater because it's a, it's a balancing act. The higher I build a levee, the more I become a bowl. So even if there's not a flood and it rains, I drown. So... <laughs> It's either coming from the sky or it's coming down the river. Everybody is within 250 yards of that water, so it's very easy to get people involved. And, it's, and, and one of the things that we have to get outside of our box 
is the continuing, repeating, build the levy, take the levy down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are our long-term mitigation situations and how do we get there? This is something we'll spend a lot of time talking about next week as we go down the river. If you're listening in, our panel here at the One Water Summit, Rita Albrecht with us, the mayor of Bemidji. Phil Stang is an artist and the mayor of Kimswick, Missouri. Radhika Fox is the CEO of the U.S. Water Alliance. And James Anthony Parrott, been calling him Tony, is the executive director for the Jefferson County Sewer District in Louisville, Kentucky. Back out into the audience. Yes, sir. Good morning. Andy Richardson with uh, Greeley and Hanson. Mm-hmm. I would be remiss if I didn't comment on a landmark effort that the U.S. Water Alliance took on, and it's consistent with your traveling down the Mississippi. And I think it was 2013, the U.S. Water Alliance convened a group of individuals from the headwaters of the Mississippi all the way down to New Orleans. It was called the Mississippi Dialogues, mm-hmm. and it was about nutrient control on the river. And the concept behind it was to think about innovative ways to bring ag and publicly owned treatment works, utilities together. And what came out of that was several strategies on addressing non-point sources. Non-point sources are any point, any discharge that's not coming from a publicly owned treatment works. And I'm bringing this up for your listeners that, again, maybe a plug for the U.S. Water Alliance. There's a document (laughs) on the website that talks about these strategies. And there's a lot of states, and I'm picking up on what Roger said and what Radhika pointed out. There's a lot of states where people are thinking now, instead of investing millions of dollars at a treatment works, what if the funds get diverted working with ag to help them address the problem? So there's a lot of people thinking about that right now. What it needs is pointed out in other places. It probably needs some political will. It probably needs some people thinking differently about what outcomes we want to have and then working together and make it happen. So I just thought you might be interested in that based on the journey that that. you're taking. Yeah, Radhika. So... um Maybe some of your viewers don't live and breathe water, or your listeners don't live and breathe water um, like we do here in this room. So I'm going to actually tell you what nutrients are. Your listeners might want to know because my daughter is 10, and when we were talking about nutrients, she's like, isn't that a good thing? That sounds like nutritious, right? right? Like vitamins. or So nutrients are a good thing. We grow our food with it, et cetera, right? But it is also the uh, largest source of pollution in our waterways. And so one thing that happens when we have too many nutrients in the waters is things like algal blooms, which kind of sounds scary. But what it is is that uh, the the algae eats up the nutrients and they... um, and now the situation is at the Gulf of Mexico. We have a hypoxic dead zone. Um, the size of Connecticut, I think, is what so the yeah, prediction uh, the is. Yeah, the size right? of New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, right? That, um, and so the things that Rita is doing at the top of the Mississippi River um, are going to have an outcome years later at the, at the Gulf of Mexico. And so um, strategies like what Andy was talking around about bringing ag and utilities together to solve this together, to bring industry, uh, which also contributes to um, that pollution together in shared solutions. And um, one thing I think we have to also appreciate is that the Mississippi River Corridor is such a beautiful piece of nature, right? And it, and it is... Um, it really feeds the world. You know, 40% of agricultural products right. traverse along that corridor. Fifth, I think it's like 1.5 million jobs are supported by it. Um, the GDP of 400 billion. So it's it's an essential economic corridor. It's a, as um, the mayor said, it, art and spirit and culture are connected to that river. So it's for us to all protect. Mm-hmm. Other questions or comments? Right over there. Oh, good morning. 
I'm here as a delegate, both as an artist and also from the North Minneapolis group that came to talk about equity. And the question, actually the concern I have is about that combination that we need to have of infrastructure to make sure we, we all have water that is about cities and counties working together. But there is an ecological infrastructure that we also need. And if we're going to have that, we really need to take a close look at how we are growing our food. And I think we are at a crossroads right now. When we look at the studies, what we see is that over 20 years, the Chippewa River was studied. And from all of the different byproducts from industrial agriculture, and even though they've tried to reduce the amount of fertilizers and pesticides, the byproducts are still contaminating that river. There is a time now where we have to really look at how do we do regenerative agriculture in this country and support our farmers in moving into that approach so that our water systems are no longer contaminated. And our sister from the Native American community reminded us that seven generations from now, they are relying on us to do this work now to make the changes we need so that that ecological infrastructure is in place for them. I think we're really at a critical point where we need to make those collaborations to look at how do we help farmers move into that mm -hmm. and how do communities then also become part of that regenerative agriculture system. Thank you. I, I want to get some other voices in here because we've got a few minutes left right there. Hi, everyone. My name is Antoinette Folks. I'm a graduate student at Iowa State University. Hi. Um, someone made the comment about what are we doing to activate members of the community? Um, and as a youth, my question is, what are we doing to activate the youth in our communities around conversations about water? Um, I don't see many youth delegations that are represented here, and that's something that I was looking for um, as a young professional. But these are conversations that are going to impact the youth. And eventually, we will be here and we'll be sitting on the stage answering these questions. But oftentimes, we're late to the table. So what advice do you all have to activate youth in communities to start, um, to start building that capacity and that leadership? Because the youth need to be empowered and they need to be in rooms just like this. Let me, you know, Tony, since you were talking about community conversations... Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, I, I think the, there's a lot of different ways. One way that uh, we uh, try to do it is, number one, we've we developed a an educational curriculum that is called uh, From Tap to the River. And basically it's teaching the water cycle uh, probably at the, like the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade level in our school systems. And so we actively do that with the Louisville Water Company We've developed a, an education curriculum that we are using uh, with uh, those students in school. Secondly, uh, we did this in Cincinnati when I was there. We also are now doing it in Louisville. We're actually developing a career path opportunity for uh, high school students uh, around the age of uh, 15 or, or, or at least sophomores in high school to embed them in our organization working with mentors in their specific field of interest. 
whether they're going to be biologists or whether they're going to be engineers or whether they're going to be science, uh, scientists or whether they're going to be mechanics or whether they're going to be um, uh, welders or whether they just want to go into finance. There's a lot of different career paths working with utilities. And so by engaging them early on, they can decide if they want a career path working for a utility or at least are getting educated and learn more about what the challenges and what the issues are from a public utility perspective. And, of course, from a national perspective, WEF, uh, the Water Environment Federation, and also the American Water Works Association, they always have large delegates, uh, delegations at the national conferences uh, that are held uh, for uh, high school students and college students as well. Radhika, do you, just real quick, do you hear that as a, hey, the next One Water Summit, maybe we have more young people participating? Absolutely. And- <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, right there. Hi. Uh, good morning. My name is Sharon Day. I'm from here in Minnesota. And I just want to say, you know, the words that we use are like really important. And so as we talk about um, in our language, we say the Mississippi ZB, um, the, the uh, beautiful river. And I think that when we talk about the Mississippi as a, it, what would happen if we talked about the Mississippi as, you know, the main artery on uh, Nimama Ki, our mother earth. No, she's the main artery, and, and then all these other rivers that come into her, these tributaries, you know, are smaller um, arteries. And, and when we think about um, the water to, you know, just every day to say, um, you know, we love the water because um, we are the water as well. Our bodies are mostly water. And if we did that, we would begin to think about her and care about her in perhaps a different way. And... Um, and, and, and we perhaps might be able to begin uh, to tell the truth about um, what we are actually doing to all of our waterways. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just a couple more minutes here for somebody who wanted to get in on this. And yes, right there in the middle. Hi, good morning. I'm Colin Wellenkamp. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I, I just wanted to make a comment on the, the political sea change that has occurred. You've been alluding to it a little bit, wondering... How has the political landscape in response to Flint, in response to Toledo, in response to the the dead zone, has those things had an impact? Are we seeing a sea change anywhere? We absolutely are. On the Mississippi River, uh, we have totally seen a political sea change. One, we now have a Mississippi River caucus in the U.S. House and Senate. Mm. It's led by Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri and Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota. It's totally bipartisan. It's fiercely bipartisan bringing folks like Senator Bozeman of Arkansas and senators from Illinois together around a single course of action on how do we secure our water resource. The other one is at the more local level. For the first time, we're not walling off the river. We're not trying to build walls and levees and and that being our knee-jerk reaction. Uh, Mayor Stang, another mayor just north of him, the mayor of Arnold, Missouri, he doesn't want a levee. He says... I want a riverfront park that's designed to flood. I don't want to wall off the most spectacular resource in the world from the rest of my population. I want them to have free access to it, but I kind of keep them safe. So I want to do what Davenport did and make a, a park that's designed to flood so that everyone in the public can enjoy it. Everyone in those, in those neighborhoods can have free access to it. We haven't seen a political solution like that embraced by both rural and urban communities alike 
in such a large corridor in our country, a 10-state corridor before. So that is a real political sea change that has brought about recently. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for being a great audience. I know the conversation continues. Mayors, Tony, Radhika, thank you for hanging out with us on the stage here and for all the great questions from the audience. Thank you. Thank you.